Hi everyone, I'm Patrick Johnson. And I'm Shante Westmoreland. And this is Do You Even Have a Tech Degree? Great, so hello. Welcome to the uh, Berkeley Technology Law Journal's Do You Even Have a Tech Degree podcast. This is the first <laughs> official airing. My name is Patrick Johnson, and I'm joined by my partner and the host of the podcast, Shante. Hey, Patrick. Uh, as you said, I'm Shante, and yeah, I'm glad this is finally happening. So just by way of background, um, we started this podcast. Um, I came up with the idea over the summer. Uh, I eventually want to get into IP litigation, and as a liberal arts major, I uh, kept getting the question, well, you know, why do you want to do this when you don't even have a technical background? This is going to be really hard. So uh, the title of the podcast, uh, Do You Even Have a Tech Degree, is sort of a kind of a play on that um, and sort of speaks to the message that I want to have behind this podcast. I'd really like to take some of these concepts that are admittedly technical and um, break them down for people who might not have that background. So I'm hoping that this will be both uh, sort of an educational as well as entertaining way to explore uh, some of these intersections between law and technology. Well, I think it's a great way to tap into the ivory tower. Mm -hmm. I'm using finger quotation marks right now. Um, and, and, and share with people just the knowledge that is here at Berkeley Law mm -hmm. um, through a medium other than a law journal, right. which can be at times um, obtuse. Mm -hmm. So... I really um, love podcasts. I love learning from them. And I honestly want to learn more about uh, law and technology. So it's a very selfish endeavor of me because I'm literally just spending time talking about the things that I already want to be learning more about. Mm -hmm. So with that perspective, I want to bring on um, innovators and, and leading legal minds and leading practitioners and explore their world and see what they are working on and you know how they can translate that to into simple English um, as much as possible. Should we talk about Fred? Yeah. Uh, my name's Fred Von Lohman. Fred is copyright counsel at Google. Um, I Let's see, I went to law school at Stanford, graduated in 1996, which seems like an impossibly long time ago now, uh, and so in terms of my career path, let's see, I clerked for the federal courts twice, once in San Francisco at the district court, and then in Seattle for the Ninth Circuit. Um, I worked at Morrison & Forrester uh, in San Francisco for a couple years. Uh, then I actually came over to Bolt uh, and was a research fellow for a year. At mm -hmm. The right school, finally. There you go. I finally came to the right side of the bay to, do, uh, to, to come to the proper school and uh, was a research fellow with the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology, which I'm sure you guys are quite familiar with. Fred went on to tell us about how his dream job then opened up with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, where he stayed for nine years before taking on his current role at Google. And left in 2010 to join Google uh, as copyright counsel, which is where I am today. Uh, and the position at Google really involves providing expert copyright legal advice as part of Google's uh, global legal team. Uh, there are actually four of us who specialize in copyright law at Google, 
And at a smaller company, I think it's the kind of role that outside counsel would perform. Um, but because Google is as large as it is and has as many cutting-edge copyright questions that arise, uh, it makes sense to have a full-time uh, group inside that uh, can provide that expertise. Um, so, What does your day-to-day -day look like? How do you split your time? I would say I split my time roughly in thirds between advising on litigation, advising on product development, and advising on public policy uh, kinds of questions. And if you had to pick one of the thirds to be your favorite or the most engaging to you, which one would you say that would be? Um, I, there, I, you know, they're like children. I don't think I can <laughs> pick between them. Uh, the thing I guess I'm most grateful for is that uh, I get to think just about copyright uh, pretty much exclusively. Uh, and that's a, a luxury of specialization that I think a lot of lawyers don't have. Uh, and it depends. A lot of lawyers I don't think want it, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there's people who like to be an inch deep and a mile wide. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a person who likes to be, you know, an inch wide and a mile deep. Mm -hmm. So, you know, different, different people gravitate to different kinds of practices. Um, and uh, I've been fascinated with copyright law since law school mm -hmm. and had always hoped that I would get to work uh, in that area more or less exclusively. And I count myself as very lucky that uh, my current position lets me do that. That's awesome. So let's see if you can sort of come back up to the, to the surface of your mile deep and kind of give us a baseline. What, it, what is copyright? Well, copyright is a very old legal system uh, that is intended to create incentives for creativity, uh, for authorship, uh, that otherwise wouldn't happen. So the idea is we give authors, whether they're writers or painters or poets or filmmakers or software programmers, uh, we give them exclusive rights in the works that they create. So if you're a writer and you write a novel, uh, you have the right to prevent anybody from making copies of your novel without your permission. Or for that matter, to make a movie out of your novel without your permission, or perform, you know, turn your novel into a play and perform it on Broadway without your permission, or broadcast it on the radio without your permission. So uh, it is by granting these exclusive rights to authors that we think we uh, can encourage more of the kind of creativity that we all want to see. Mm -hmm. uh, because it would be hard for creators to make a living if the moment they created a work, they could no longer stop other people from copying it uh, freely. Uh, that being said, copyright, you know, you have to remember, copyright law is intended for the benefit of the public, mm -hmm. not for the benefit of authors. We protect authors and we grant these rights because we as the public benefit from that creativity. At some point, the copyright expires, and then it becomes perfectly fine to copy it freely without needing to get the author's permission or payment. So that's why Shakespeare today is in the public domain. Anybody can copy Shakespeare plays and perform them, and you don't have to pay the estate of William Shakespeare to do it. Um, it's funny you should say that it was it's short. <laughs> Uh, when copyright began, I think the term was short. It was 14 years with a 14-year extension. Uh, and uh, today, copyright lasts for the life of the author plus 70, 70 years. So I would say copyright today is quite long, in fact, too long. I 
think most economists will tell you that a copyright term of this duration um, is not necessary mm -hmm. for the incentive that, that I s was talking about, right? I mean, artists, um, I think there are no creators out there who would refuse to create if the protection they got was the life of the author plus 50 years, for example, which was the previous term. Mm -hmm. So I think copyright has gotten quite long, mm -hmm. uh, maybe longer. You, you can obviously, copyright today attaches to almost any creative work you can think of. Mm -hmm. So your emails, uh, your blog posts, uh, maybe some of your tweets, uh, they are protected by copyright for over a century. And I'm not sure anybody thinks that you needed a century of copyright protection to whip up that blog post or type up that email or tweet that uh, you know idea you had last night. We're living in a time right now where it's super easy to create content as well as super easy to potentially have your content infringed on or infringe on content because of the types of technology and things that we have. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and why it exists. Sure. Um, copyright, I think you're exactly right. The extension of copyright's term and also the growth of its scope uh, has meant that now everything uh, is touched by copyright. Um, when it was originally created, copyright was intended for a very narrow set of things, right? Maps, books, charts, things that were commercial that only uh, enterprises could copy, mm -hmm. right? I mean, for most of the history of copyright, typical people could never infringe a copyright because you couldn't infringe unless you had a printing press or a theater or, you know, a radio station, things that regular people never had. Mm -hmm. um, that all started changing maybe in the about, I would say, the 1970s when technology started to m let regular people do things that copyright law cares about. What are your thoughts on the fact that copyright now protects our selfies instead of just the business productions that it was intended to look out for? I always wondered that. I mean, besides uploading a YouTube video, you've got to wonder, does the person who makes a meme own that meme? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's mm -hmm. fascinating that it is not just for enterprises, mm -hmm. as he said. Mm -hmm. It's for, the, um, for everyone that's listening to this podcast. All right, back to Fred. So the photocopier was maybe the beginning. The uh, home cassette recorder was another one. And then, of course, the VCR, perhaps most famously. Suddenly, regular people could do things that copyright law cared about. Um, and we've, the Internet, fast forward to today, the Internet just makes that even more uh, complicated than ever before. Because today, everything you type every video you make, every selfie you post to Instagram, all of that is protected by copyright for a century or more with a whole bunch of exclusive rights uh, backed up by legal penalties for infringement. Uh, and I'm not sure the copyright system was designed with selfies and you know these kinds of works in mind. The system was designed to protect commercial works, films, music, published books, mm -hmm. journals, magazines, newspapers, the stuff of business, the stuff that w is commercial in nature. Mm -hmm. um, 
And yet, because copyright law has expanded in scope, now it covers everything we do on the internet. Mm -hmm. And so the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA, as it's often referred to, um, was created by Congress in 1998 to try to address some of this complexity to allow e-commerce, to allow the internet more generally to thrive. In 1998, it's funny to think about it, Google didn't exist uh, in 98. It was actually incorporated in 1998. Mm -hmm. So as a company, it was born the same year as the DMCA was enacted. Um, the companies that were there, like Yahoo and uh, AT&T and uh, other uh, companies that were thinking about the internet back then, they went to Congress and they said, all the way back in 1998, copyright law strictly applied will kill this medium. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we can't know if users, you know, copied that text from a pre-existing poem. We can't know if that piece of music was something they, you know, recorded without permission uh, as a ISP or as a forum, or as a search engine. Uh, none of these services can ascertain the copyright status of the millions and millions of things that the many millions of users might be talking about, posting, copying, uh, commenting on. Uh, and so Congress created the DMCA. One of the key provisions was to create safe harbors from copyright infringement liability for online service providers to basically say, hey, if we want search engines, we got to create some legal certainty so that people know what the rules are. So again, providing incentives for businesses to keep providing things like search engines um, by yeah. ensuring those safe harbors. I, I wouldn't necess necessarily say incentives. It was more like uh, clearing away risk uh, and providing some more certainty. Uh, and it worked both ways. Uh, so the safe harbors that are part of the DMCA uh, created both protections for service providers and also imposed obligations on those service providers as a condition of those protections. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if users post information, like Instagram's a great example, you know, hundreds of millions of users uploading photos to Instagram. Um, some of that stuff's probably infringing. In fact, I'm positive some of it is infringing. Just as an exercise of raw numbers, somebody is probably taking a picture of a work of art they don't own, mm -hmm. or uh, they're taking a picture of uh, a sculpture that you know they don't own the copyright in, mm -hmm. uh, and uploading that to Instagram. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a copyright infringement. At least it could be. Mm -hmm. And thanks to the DMCA, the in this case, Instagram doesn't have to worry about that so long as they do what people call notice and takedown. Mm -hmm. So if a copyright owner notifies Instagram that, hey, this picture is my picture or includes my sculpture or my painting and I'm not cool with it being here, mm -hmm. and the service provider removes that content, mm -hmm. then they're not going to be held liable. So as I say, they both the service provider gets a benefit and the rights holder gets a benefit, mm -hmm. right? They get a takedown system that does not require them to go to court. Mm -hmm. They don't have to hire a lawyer. Um, in the, you know, before the DMCA, if you wanted to, you know, assert your rights and mm -hmm. force people to take action, mm -hmm. you probably would have had to hire a lawyer and go to court and, you know, send letters and do all the things that 
employers get paid to do. Um, but after the DMCA, you could literally send an email or fill out a web form. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was the balance that was struck. And quite frankly, every company, every internet company you've ever heard of relies on the DMCA, would not exist without the DMCA. Facebook, Yahoo, Google, eBay, Amazon, none of those companies could exist in the form they do today without the kind of baseline legal protections that the DMCA provides. Absolutely. In addition to um, the DMCA, YouTube has created, YouTube has its own sort of safe structure that it's set in place um, to sort of help monitor some of these uh, potentially infringing videos. Can you talk about uh, Content ID? Sure. Um, so Content ID is a content identification system, that's why we call it Content ID, um, that matches or is able to identify uh, content that appears in a video. So video and audio content mm -hmm. primarily. Uh, so for example, if you take a video of yourself scuba diving mm -hmm and you want to post it to YouTube and you really, really would love to have your favorite song be the soundtrack, um, you can do that. You can make your video, put your favorite song as the soundtrack, upload it, and then we will compare that video, compare every video that gets uploaded to YouTube against a database of all the copyrighted works that copyright owners have told us about in the past. And if that song that you used is one that we have a fingerprint for, copyright owner has told us please this is my song please keep an eye out for it mm -hmm. um, if there if it if there is a, uh, a fingerprint and their content ID should match on your video and <coughs> then the uh, copyright owner gets to choose what happens mm -hmm. what happens next so the copyright owner can choose to block your video basically say look your video has my song in it I don't want my song on this site mm -hmm. it's not going up the copyright owner can also choose to monetize the video. So your video goes up, mm -hmm. but there's going to be ads around it, maybe before, maybe, you know, uh, and that money will then get divided between YouTube and the rights holder. The rights holder will get the majority of that money, and YouTube will keep uh, a minority of it. So that's the second option. The third option is the copyright owner can just say, oh, I'm fine with it, just leave it on the site. But I'd like to know, you know, where it's popular, for example, or, you know, which you know, which country, what season is it popular, what's, you know, the kind of basic analytic demographic information that all YouTube users uh, can see. Um, so Content ID applies, you know, uh, identifies the content and applies these policies automatically uh, to, you know, over, you know, hundreds of hours of video every second that get upload, uploaded to YouTube. So then I asked him if users get any say in what happens to their videos. The vast majority of users, um, users are just happy, you know, that their video's up, mm -hmm. right? It's they want their cat video. Yeah, and they want it with their favorite song. Right. Um, and Content ID makes that possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and because many, in fact, the vast majority of our Content ID partners um, do not use the system to block content. Mm -hmm. They use the system to allow the content to remain on the site, usually with monetization. So the major record labels, for example, the vast majority of the catalogs that they uh, have submitted to Content ID are authorized uh, to appear on the site uh, in exchange for monetization. So uh, blocking is the, uh, 
the, the less frequent of the options that mm -hmm. rights holders choose. So for those right, uh, for, sorry, for those YouTube users who choose to upload a video with, you know, a snippet from a TV show or a so their favorite song or whatever it might be, uh, for those users, they're often and you know, and the content owner has allowed that said monetize. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a win-win. Mm -hmm. The content owner gets paid. The user gets to you know, put their favorite song on their video or take that short snippet from Star Wars or whatever it might be. Um, and so that's great for everybody. And of course, YouTube gets a little piece of the ad revenue, which is good for YouTube. So uh, that's a win-win. Now, if, on the other hand, the user is not content with the match, if the user says, hey, wait a minute, that, that content is not in my video, or I have a license from the copyright owner for it to be in that video, or I was criticizing that content. I made a, a, a video that was critical of this content. Mm -hmm. I don't want it to be monetized and that money to go to the creator, uh, to, the, to the claiming uh, copyright owner. Um, you can dispute a content ID claim. And we have a process where users can say that was a mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, and the rights holder will see that dispute and will get to decide uh, maybe it was a mistake and I can retract the claim. And if the user and the copyright owner continue to disagree, the user can appeal and get their video restored, uh, basically override the content ID claim. Uh, at that point, however, the copyright owner can still send a takedown notice, what I talked about a few minutes ago, that copyright owners can send formal DMCA takedown notices to service providers. And if ser service providers don't want to run the risk of copyright liability, they have to expeditiously remove that content um, if they want the safe harbor from that liability. So in that case, then you know it's out of it's not in content ID world anymore. It goes to the DMCA process, and you know the, that video will come down uh, unless the user submits a counter notice, which is another procedure that's set forth in the DMCA uh, that allows the user to uh, basically you know counter a, a takedown notice. Uh, and then at that point, the rights holder has to decide whether to sue. Mm -hmm. So um, it sounds like there could be a lot of back and forth then. Yeah, it's really, I think of it as sort of rungs on a dispute ladder. Right. And each rung is a sort of different process, right? Mm -hmm. There's the match, there's a dispute possibility, an appeal, the DMCA notice, counter notice, and then the possibility of a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, there is a lot of back and forth, and, you know, often users don't, completely understand where they are on that ladder and um, that can create confusion as well so that's an area where uh, I know my colleagues at YouTube have uh, are, have tried very hard to, to explain what is a very complicated system um, to a lot of users who maybe I mean certainly they're not lawyers and many of them have never even heard about copyright law mm -hmm. so uh, it, it's a it's an ongoing challenge both technically to make mm -hmm. content ID work well and also from a educational point of view to be clear with our users about what's happening and why. So according to Google's transparency report, they're getting upwards of 3 million uh, takedown requests a day. 3 million? Yeah. Um, I actually think it shows the DMCA process working working well. Okay. Um, so Google has uh, published and has now for a number of years been publishing a, as part of our transparency report online mm -hmm. Uh, information about how many takedown notices we receive uh, for search and from who mm -hmm. and for what sites uh, and making that information available publicly mm -hmm. so that people uh, have a sense of you know 
what's being removed from their search results and why. Mm -hmm. So we receive a large number of copyright takedown notices, these so-called DMCA takedown notices. Mm -hmm. uh, for search, we re uh, receive uh, you know, roughly 90 million a month. Well, we have a team, it's a sizable team, uh, but it is, you know, obviously we can't have humans uh, evaluate three million notices a day. So there is uh, a lot of automation, uh, there's algorithms that we use to try to detect notices that we think might be invalid, mm -hmm. might be mistakes, mm -hmm. um, but we use a, a mix of human review and machine uh, processing to try to go through those notices, uh, catch the ones that are bad, and process the ones that are, are valid. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority are perfectly valid. I think we, uh, you know, we uh, end up accepting on the order of 97% of the notices that we get. Uh, so uh, I, I'm certainly not suggesting that, uh, that copyright owners are, are not doing a good job. And frankly, I think you know, when you ask why is this the volume so high, why has it grown uh, so much in the past several years, I think part of the reason is because Google has worked hard with copyright owners to make the system more efficient, mm -hmm. to make it easier to send notices at scale, uh, at volume. And rights holders have also done a better and better job finding infringing content on the internet, right? I mean, they now have technology and tools that allow them to monitor the internet much more effectively than they did five years ago. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's a sign that the system is working. Copyright owners are using it. They're using it more intensively. Mm -hmm. They're uh, benefiting from technology that allows them to scan the web more efficiently. Mm -hmm. um, so all of this, I think, points to the system uh, proving to be pretty durable and, and pretty scalable. So then we asked him what he thought was on the horizon for Google. Well, the thing to keep in mind is that the DMCA, I think of the DMCA safe harbors as a floor, not a ceiling. <clears throat> so <clears throat> for many service providers, particularly smaller service providers, the DMCA is working great. It's operating exactly as intended. It's protecting them from uh, copyright liability that would otherwise be devastating for the conduct of a very tiny minority of users. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, this is what some researchers have called the sort of DMCA classic, mm -hmm. which is online service providers who receive, you know, a small, a tiny number of notices compared to Google. Mm -hmm. That is the vast majority of service providers out there. Um, and for them, the DMCA is probably all that anybody needs, and it's working very well. For other service providers, like Google, mm -hmm. those that are larger, that have more resources, um, we certainly comply with the DMCA and we process these notices, mm -hmm. but we also do more than that. Um, because when we, where we can, uh, we want to be able to uh, deter infringement, to keep infringement off our services, mm -hmm. to make sure that uh, copyright infringers are not uh, monetizing their activities using our ad networks, for example. So we do a great deal above and beyond just the DMCA's uh, notice and takedown process. We've already discussed content ID, which is above and beyond what is required. Um, uh, we also take proactive measures to make sure our ad networks are not being used to support uh, rogue sites that are trying to capitalize on infringing activity. 
um, you know, we have a number of uh, these kinds of above and beyond efforts that we're always working on. So, I, and we're not alone. I, sh I don't mean to say Google is somehow the only one. Uh, if you look, <coughs> if you talk to the big services out there, you know, Facebook has announced that they are working on a system similar to Content ID mm -hmm. to use on their video platform. Mm -hmm. um, Scribd, which is a major online host of text, has said they have a filtering system that they use. A uh, number of other services have announced similar initiatives that are above and beyond what the DMCA requires. So I think uh, it's a, you know, I think that's what we're going to see more of. I think that's what we should see more of, more voluntary measures to try to address piracy online mm -hmm. uh, in a way that is, you know, in addition to what the DMCA provides for smaller providers and providers who don't need anything different from, from what uh, what is required uh, under these under the statute. So I think you're going to see a continuing mix of baseline DMCA notice and takedown mm -hmm. combined with voluntary initiatives that add more uh, approaches where those approaches work. Well, our last question that we like to ask our uh, interviewees is um, if you had to define tech law, what definition would you put to it? It's interesting because I think um, <coughs> technology and law develop together. Right, a lot of law is created specifically uh, to address new challenges posed by technology, mm -hmm. and there's nothing special in my mind about this moment compared to 50 or 100 or 200 years ago. Um, copyright itself was created uh, to address the printing press. Mm -hmm. Right before the printing press, there really wasn't much need for copyright. Copyright is entirely the creature of technological development. Mm -hmm. um, once the printing press was out there, once it became possible to make large numbers of copies at low cost, suddenly we needed a law. Uh, so I think in, in many ways I think tech law is, is really uh, uh, you know, emblematic of tech law. It is a law, a legal system, that was developed in order to address new challenges created by new technologies that previously hadn't uh, hadn't existed. So, I think that's as good a definition of uh, a tech law for 300 years ago as it is for today. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Wow. So, I feel like. I learned a lot personally as somebody that's interacted with YouTube and made videos but never really known what lines I'm crossing, how they got taken down. That was very, very helpful. Definitely. So we talked about y a lot of user stuff. Mm -hmm. We talked about the history of copyright law mm -hmm. and how much become much more prevalent these days with respect to individuals um, more than it used to be. Um, it used to be focused mainly on businesses. Right, definitely. And it was also, it was interesting hearing how Congress responded to that change by enacting the DMCA mm -hmm. um, and how uh, private companies such as YouTube and, you know, Google have figured out how to not take themselves out of the legal process, but just like 
sort of make their own private law where they can deal directly with users and um, right. the owners of the copyright without having to involve the legal system. Right. Not everyone has the time to go to court over a small 30-second video. Right. It sounds like without this mechanism in place, it'd be pretty much impossible to have Google be as we know it today. Mm-hmm. So thanks again to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology the Berkeley Technology Law Journal. Um, I'm Patrick. I'm Shantae. And we'll see you next time. Bye.